Gentlemen, bienvenue and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing The Phantom of the Opera. We're back to our old tricks. Yes, back to our classic format. After we took that nice little break to talk about Disney's Descendants, now we're back to talking about Tony Award winning or Tony Award nominated musicals. <laughs> we're doing really well at the top of this one, I think. Patty, Benny, we are all here. And I just got to say right up top that I hope you, of course, the listener, are doing well. But I think that this is just one of the loveliest days that we've had together here in the studio because Benny's girlfriend, who this is not the first time that I've met Benny's girlfriend, of course. I met her briefly in passing just once before. But today, today, Benny was dropped off at the studio by his lovely girlfriend, who shall remain nameless, of course. And we were delighted by a surprise that she had for us. She has recently taken up knitting, knitting! And she has knitted three wonderful hats for us. Hats for the wintertime, hats for Chicago wintertime, and here's the thing. Each hat has our first name initial on it. So my hat, of course, says J, and of course Benny's hat says B, and Patty's hat has a big old P on it, P for Patty. And that's when we realized it's PBJ. PBJ, Patty, Ben, and Jonathan. That is just so delightful to me. They have little flaps that come down over the years, and then they also have a big palm at the top. They are delightful, they are goofy, and I will never take my hat off ever. That's not true. I have to wash my hair. But thank you to Benny's girlfriend, who shall remain nameless, of course. Thank you to her for this wonderful gift. I have never had anything so special in my life. This delightful hat is is the best hat that I have ever known. It's the best hat that I've ever known, and it's the best hat that I now own. So I have a couple of things that I want to address here as we close out this opening segment of ours. We we always tend to move at a very brisk pace through this opening segment, don't we? It's because we always have so much to talk about, especially this week with the Phantom of the Opera. But a couple more things here. So Harry Grainer, Groner? He was in... Okay, so his name got thrown around when we were talking about cats, and his name seemed familiar to me, so I decided decided to do 10 seconds worth of Googling, and I confirmed that not only was he in the original cast for Cats, our most recent subject, he was, of course, in the cast, the Broadway cast for Crazy For You. So we have absolutely encountered Harry more than once at this point. We'll keep an eye out for you. We'll keep the eye out for you. And closing out this segment, I just want to announce... That's our new theme song for... The Cream Pie Cutie Club. The Cream Pie Cutie Club. We have a new member. Huh? We're welcoming a new member into the ranks of the Cream Pie Cutie Club. And that is, of course, of course, you don't even... (laughs) 
me saying, of course, you don't know who I'm going to say. You don't know. It could be anyone. You could be thinking, oh, is it David Copperfield, the magician? No, it's not David Copperfield, the magician. It's Anthony Ramos. Ramos? I'm not quite sure. Anthony Ramos of Hamilton and the In the Heights movie. Yes, Cream Pie Cutie. Yes. Yes, Cream Pie Cutie Club. Yeah, da, da, da. So welcome, Anthony, you Cream Pie Cutie, you. Now, just to be clear, Cream Pie Cuties are known as such. They are known as Cream Pie Cuties because they have my permission. They have my willing consent to put me on my back and turn me into a cream pie, okay? Show me the show facts regarding Phantom of the Opera. Stop talking about... <laughs> Stop talking about getting turned into a cream pie cutie. What is this, Urban Dictionary, the podcast? It is not... Well, that'd be interesting. That would be a fun idea for a podcast, actually. I don't actually know what the structure of that would be, what the segments would be, but maybe that's a pitch that we can sell. <laughs> Let's write something up afterwards. I am giggly today. Oh, goodness gracious. This week's subject is based on Gaston Leroux's Le Fantôme de l'Opera. The piece was first published as a serial between September 1909 and January 1910 via the French publication La Gaulois. I'm not, I'm getting nods. A lot of shoulder shrugging from beyond the glass. I'm not really sure if we're pronouncing that right, of course. So it was it was published via this French publication before being published as a novel in 1911. I would go into the various historical incidents LaRue cited as inspiration for the novel, but Le Fontaine's Wikipedia page is so poorly written, I can't begin to parse out a coherent timeline. In short, LaRue claimed his novel was rooted in actual events, though I'm thinking this is a bunch of baloney. Prior to the 1980s, Le Fontaine de l'Opera had been adapted into to a musical not once, but twice. The first adaptation, known as Phantom of the Opera, premiered in 1976 at the Duke's Playhouse. It featured a book by Ken Hill and score by Ian Armit, but when the show was revived in 1984, Hill replaced Armit's modern score with his own more operatic compositions. Ironically, Hill offered the role of Christine to Sarah Brightman when casting this revival. Brightman, who was married to Andrew Lloyd Webber at the time, turned down the part only to appear as Christine in Weber's adaptation one year later. Sounds fishy, right? Well, we'll put a tin, we'll put a pin in that for now, I should say, but I do want to get a sample of the Hill score. Can we get that, Patty and Betty? The second adaptation of LaRue's novel, known simply as Phantom, featured music and lyrics by Maura Yeston and a book by Arthur Copet. Director Joffrey Holder pitched the idea to Yeston and Copet in 1983 after obtaining the rights from LaRue's estate. Their hope was to premiere on Broadway, and a great deal of work was put into developing the score, but investors backed out once Weber made it clear his Phantom would transition to New York. Yeston and Copet's Phantom was subsequently shelved, though it was eventually staged in 1991 at Houston's Theater Under the Stars. It has since gone on to be produced over 1,000 times. Can we get a bit of a Yeston score as well, Patty and Benny? My mother, poor 
now flashback to the year 1984, when Andrew Lloyd Webber first approached producer Cameron McIntosh about The Phantom of the Opera. Hello, Cameron. It's Andrew, old chap. Andrew. Lloyd Webber. Yes, I was wondering if you'd like to produce another one of my lovely musicals. Remember our days with cats and song and dance? Oh, what a time we had. Do you remember the laughs, the tears, the... Cameron, it's Andrew. Lloyd Webber. Yes, well, look, I've been positively champing at the bit to write a romantic tale, don't you know? And I believe the Phantom of the Opera could be our next meal ticket. What do you say, Cameron? It's Andrew. Lloyd Webber. I have a face like an egg white. Yes. Initially, Weber and Macintosh had no idea how to move forward with this wholly original idea of theirs, cough cough. They screened both the 1925 and 1943 film adaptations of the novel, but neither proved to be especially inspiring. Luckily, Andrew happened upon a copy of the out-of-print novel while visiting New York. Chris and I had a hard time believing the novel would have been largely unavailable to the public. Libraries weren't carrying it in the 80s? That was our question. At the same time, I wouldn't be surprised if Le Fantôme had generally faded into obscurity before finding new life on stage. Ken Hill also came across a copy of the novel while developing his version of Phantom. Don't sleep on Ken Hill's part in this show's history. Do stick around, there's more to tell. Weber approached several lyricists in the early days of Phantom's development, including Jim Steinman, who was busy working on a Bonnie Tyler album, Alan J. Lerner, who backed out after falling ill, and Richard Stilgo, who had previously written for Weber's Starlight Express. Stilgo's lyrics were deemed unromantic and rewritten by Charles Hart, who would ultimately receive credit as the show's chief lyricist. Weber's Phantom was first staged in 1985 at Sidmonton Court, a 5,000-acre estate owned by the composer that lies within Hampshire, England's village of Sidmonton. The village is also home to the Sidmonton Festival, where a total of 14 of Weber's musicals, including our most recent subject, Cats, were first performed for the public. The Sidmonton cast of Phantom included Colm Wilkinson, Sarah Brightman, and Clive Carter, an eventual member of the London cast. Side note, for the purposes of the Sidmonton production, Brightman's character was referred to as Kristen, not Christine. Why? No idea! The Phantom of the Opera officially premiered in London on October 9th, 1986 at Her Majesty's Theatre, where it is still running to this day after logging more than 13,629 performances. It is the third longest-running production in the West End's history behind Les Miserables, 13,964 performances and counting, and The Mousetrap, 28,000 performances and counting. The stars of the London production, Sarah Brightman, Michael Crawford, and Steve Barton, would go on to recreate their roles on Broadway. Now, as you'll recall, a moment ago we were discussing Ken Hill. I told you to put a pin in that name, Ken Hill, who wrote La Fontaine's first musical adaptation in the 1970s. That phantom, as you'll remember, was revived in 1984, and Sarah Brightman, Andrew Lloyd Webber's wife, turned down Hill's offer to play Christine. Keep all of these facts in mind, because this is where the shit really starts to stink. 
Weber and Cameron McIntosh, who in 1984 were presumably bashing their heads against a wall trying to figure out what their phantom would look and sound like, attended a performance of Ken Hill's musical during its run at Theatre Royal Stratford East. Weber and Hill were hardly strangers at this point in time, having worked together on a revival of Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. So when Weber and McIntosh approached Hill about taking his phantom to the West End, he jumped at the chance. This was it. His big break! Except, after an unspecified amount of time, Weber and McIntosh dumped Hill so they could develop their own entirely new score. Talk about a bunch of bullshit. Hello, Cameron. It's Andrew, dear boy. Andrew! Lloyd Webber. Are we still on for seeing Kenny's little show tomorrow night? I think it will dazzle him with visions of the West End, suck the meat off his bones, and leave him to rot in the hot summer sun. What say you? No, I don't think so. It's all fair use, don't you know? Oh, fuck Kenny. He's all right, Chad. Forget about him. Look, I have to scoot. Sarah's just arrived, and we're going to spank each other with an assortment of wet reeds. See you after the show, old boy. Do remember to wear a scarf then, eh? It's Andrew. Lloyd Webber. I look like egg salad that's been upchucked by a cat. Yes. For legal purposes, I want to make it clear that I'm not outright accusing Andrew Lloyd Webber of being a fuck-all plagiarist. Phantom Fever was clearly in the air in the 1970s and 1980s, and a lot of people were gunning for that brass ring, but Webber got there first. God love him. And to be fair, both the Ken Hill Phantom and the Yeston Copet Phantom have toured all over the world. Those men got paid for their efforts. I'm of the belief that most audiences walk into those productions believing they're about to see the Weber version, but maybe I'm wrong. They might simply be jonesing for any phantom material they can get their mitts on, even if it is an off-brand variety. Not everyone can afford a trip to New York or London, after all. Besides, we covered Weber's career of plagiarism during our Avita episode, and who needs to relitigate all of that in 2020? He's a thief! We all know it, but for legal purposes! <laughs> An alleged thief, alleged. The Phantom of the Opera would go on to become the winner of the 1988 Tony Award for Best Musical in opened on Broadway on January 26, 1988 at the Majestic Theater and has logged over 13,358 performances as of this recording. It is and will likely remain the longest-running show in Broadway history for quite some time. Its chief competitors, Chicago, The Lion King, and Wicked, are sure to run for years, if not decades, to come, but unless a major change occurs, they will always remain in Phantom's long, long shadow. The best Wicked can hope for at this point is to snap that fourth place title from Cats. Watch out, Cats. I already gave you a warning, but watch out. Yeah, meow. The book of the Phantom of the Opera was written by Richard Stilgo and Andrew Lloyd Webber. The music, Andrew Lloyd Webber. The lyrics, Charles Hart, with additional lyrics by Richard Stilgo. The director of the original production was Harold Prince. Hal, how you doing? Musical director, David Caddick, choreographer. Oh, well, actually, we have musical staging and choreography by. That's the distinction here. And that's Jillian Lynn. The scenic design, Maria Bjornsson. Lighting design, Andrew Andrew Bridge, sound design, Martin Levon, and costume design, Maria Bjornsson. I really like saying that name, Bjornsson. The original Broadway cast included Sarah Brightman, Michael Crawford, Steve Barton, Patty Cohenner, who performed on Thursday evenings and for Saturday matinees. We also have Chris 
Groenendal, Groenendal, Elisa Heinsen, Judy Kay, Lila, 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 let's go with Lila, Lila Martin, David Romano, Nicholas Wyman, and George Lee Andrews. Tony Nods, the Phantom of the Opera won Best Musical, of course. It also won Best Actor in a Musical, Michael Crawford. Best Featured Actress in a Musical, Judy Kay. Best Scenic Design, Maria Bjornsson. Best Costume Design, Maria Bjornsson. Best Lighting Design, Andrew Bridge. And Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Prince. It was additionally nominated for Best Book of a Musical, Richard Stilgo and Andrew Lloyd Webber. Best Original Score, Andrew Lloyd Webber, Charles Hart, and Richard Stilgo. And Best Choreography, Jillian Lynn. So in total, 10 nominations, 7 awards. And just to put this out here right up top, Best Book went to Into the Woods, James Lapine. Lapine? Oh, I'm so stupid. (laughs) And Best Choreography went to Anything Goes, Michael Samuin. Oh boy, I'm having a lot of trouble today. And finally, Best Original Score went to Into the Woods, Stephen Sondheim. I just, I know we've talked about that before. This is not the first time we have visited this season, but I just want to put that out there that Into the Woods won Best Book and Best Original Score. So what does that mean? Well, you'll have to, don't fast forward to the final thoughts, okay? We'll get there, okay? We'll get there. A 95-minute version of the piece featuring new and updated effects opened at the Venetian Las Vegas in 2006. This production, officially known as Phantom, the Las Vegas Spectacular, operated operated out of its own $40 million venue, which was specifically designed to evoke the Opera Garnier of Paris. Harold Prince wasn't available to accept his Lifetime Achievement Tony Award because he was too busy directing the Vegas Spectacular, which logged 2,691 performances before closing in 2012. It was then replaced by a Tim McGraw Faith Hill concert known as Soul to Soul, which I find to be quite funny. And I don't even know why. I think I just find that name funny. Soul to Soul. In 2011, Reed Custer High School of Braidwood, Illinois, became the first high school to stage the Phantom of the Opera, which was only allowed because the copyright had been temporarily loosened to celebrate the show's 25th anniversary. There are exactly zero news items regarding this production, which is crazy, though it is listed on the school's predictably terrible website. Reed Custer has also staged the following plays a curious savage get smart but why bump off barnaby don't drink the water the pink panther strikes again and egad the woman in white I'm not convinced any of these plays are real, but high school drama departments do have a way of finding the most obscure material imaginable, so who am I to make accusations? For the record, number one, Reed Custer's spring musical this year is The Music Man, though if I were a student at that school, I'd be the first to point out that they already staged The Music Man in 1995. A lousy 25 years pass and we're already going back to that well? We could be doing Mamma Mia right now. For the record, number two, I would talk about Andrew Lloyd Webber's sequel to the Phantom of the Opera, Love Never Dies, but I'd rather hold off on that for when we eventually produce M3, the movie musical man. Just wanted to make sure you were aware that I'm aware of it. Now, for the purposes of talking about the plot, we have another very special guest here today, someone who can speak to the subject. This is an old friend at this point, especially if you're a Patreon listener. You've heard him on All I Ask of You. You've heard him, you know, serving up some red-hot intros for a lot of our snug clubs episodes. Without any further ado, I mean, I, uh, ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between, it's the Phantom of the Opera! Yes, hello, hello, Jonathan, Patty, Benny, it's me, the fan! 
phantom of the opera is here. Yes, it has fallen to me to summarize the plot of the phantom of the opera. And let me just tell you this. This is the real deal. This is the real phantom of the opera, okay? I've been around for hundreds of years. The novel was written about me. All three of those musicals were written about me. And they all got it wrong, okay? A lot of suppositions, a lot of extrapolations, a lot of exaggerations. But I have been told not to meditate on all of the slight and large differences between the reality of my situation and that of the musical we are talking about today. And believe me, Jonathan, I understand. I'm here to do a job and I'm going to do it right now, okay, so The Phantom of the Opera, Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical, begins in Paris, oh, Paris, oui, oui, in 1911. Okay, so we, we open, the curtain comes up, we're at an auction, all right, at the Paris Opera House, and the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, this old man, in a, he's an old man in a wheelchair, he's got a gray beard, and he's got jowls, who am an old man, the Vicomte Raoul de Chagny, and Madame Giry, oh, there's a mysterious older woman there as well, everybody's at this auction today. It's buzzing. Ooh, it's buzzing. Everyone's here to bid on all of these old items that are being sold off as part of this opera estate auction, all right? And there's this music box, okay? It's a monkey sitting on a barrel organ, and everybody wants this music box. 15 francs, 20 francs. Ultimately, the music box goes to Raoul, and he has some sort of existential inner monologue crisis about the past. Oh, the music box from her description. Oh, it's oh, it's so ridiculous. And it really doesn't matter, okay? This whole prologue really doesn't matter. Really, the big important detail is the chandelier that they're selling. The chandelier is in parts, and uh, we, the chandelier is our device that takes us into the past, specifically Paris 1881, where a rehearsal of the opera Hannibal is ongoing at the Paris Opera House. Oh, it's not all dusty and grungy anymore. No, in the past, it's glorious. Oh, it's glorious now. And there are two new owners, okay? The opera has two new owners. There's Fermé and André. Okay, Fermé and André. These are two foolish gentlemen who are who are the owners of this new opera house, and their patron is a young man named Raoul. What? Raoul, he's not an old man anymore with jowls. No, he's a young, handsome man. Young, handsome, rich. And he's a patron of the arts. Yes, he has allowed Fermé and André to buy the Paris Opera House. Yes. And the star of the opera house is a woman named Carlotta. She's a diva, baby. She's a diva of the 1880s. And she's singing la 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 la, la 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 la, I am Carlotta. When all of a sudden, some sort of bag of sand or something falls from the sky and everyone goes, Oh, it's the Phantom of the Opera. All of these young ballet dancers, Oh, it's the Phantom of the Opera. Oh, run, everyone, run. And everyone, of course, blames the opera ghost. Oh, everyone's always blaming the opera ghost for every small accident that happens around here. And Carlotta, who has been witness, who has borne witness to a lot of these accidents, she has had enough, all right? She's had enough. She says, I'm out of here. I quit. And uh, so they don't have a star for that night's performance. Who is going to sing Hannibal? Hannibal. Someone has to be singing Hannibal. It is at this point that a young Madame Giry, 
Mary steps forward along with her daughter Meg and they say, oh, uh, Andre, uh, Fermi, fair, fair, whatever your name is, have you met this young woman named Christine? She's been taught how to sing and we can't talk about this training or we don't know, we don't know his name, we don't know the teacher's name, but just rest assured, she's a very talented singer. Allow her to sing for you. And at first, the two opera owners are like, oh, this should be a hoot. But then Christine opens her mouth and she sings like an angel. Cut to that night's performance. Oh, yes, Christine was singing during a rehearsal, but now she's in a full outfit. Oh, the magic of the theater. And she's singing for a packed house and everyone loves her, including Raoul, who's been watching from a box. Raoul is like, ooh, la la la, Christine. Christine backstage tells Meg they are friends. They are friends. They friends. They are good friends. They laugh. They giggle. They dance. She tells Meg, as well as Raoul, about an angel of music who has come to visit her. This angel of music who she has never seen. She has only ever heard his voice. She has been taught by this angel of music how to sing. And Meg's reaction to this story is, okay, weirdo. And Raoul's reaction is, well, okay, weirdo. And the Phantom says to Christine, once everybody leaves, come to me, weirdo. Come to your angel of music. Christine thinks to herself at this moment, oh, this is probably the angel of music. I don't think this is a red flag. Uh, this is the angel of music, you know, the angel that my father said he would send to me once he went to heaven. My father, the famous violinist who died, he said to me on his deathbed that he would go to heaven and send an angel of music to me. Yes, obviously this is what's happening right now. Uh, maybe the angel is my father. Who cares? Teach me about my diaphragm. Take me away. So the Phantom and Christine take a little boat trip and uh, Christine goes to a lair, essentially. It's a cave lair where the Phantom hangs out. He's got an organ and a bunch of candles and some, you know, books and <laughs> I'm sure he's got some nice reading material for when he gets bored. He can read the Bible or something. I don't know. And she sees a, a vision of herself in a wedding dress while in the lair and it causes her to faint. Oh, I faint. Hours later, she wakes up. The Phantom is banging away on one of his compositions. He's at his organ working on one of his uh, his wonderful pieces of music. Oh, goodness gracious. And Christine sneaks up behind him and removes his mask. And the Phantom says, Oh, I did not like that, you young whelp. Oh, you... What does he call her in the musical? Uh, you paragon of nastiness or something like that. So Christine says, Oh, I'm so sorry. I didn't think it would be wrong of me to sneak up behind you and <laughs> snatch your mask away. And the Phantom's like, Yeah, that's fine. Look, we should probably bring you back to the service. The surface, I should say. <laughs> so that you may be of service to the opera. Yes, I have big plans for you, Christine. Come, come, come. Let's go back to the surface. In the next sequence, we have the Phantom sending notes, okay? He's all he's all about sending letters to all of his... his <laughs> his presumed enemies. So Ferme and Andre receive a little note from the Phantom, as do uh, Raoul and Carlotta. The Phantom is just making a lot of demands at this point. Madame Giry delivers yet another note from the Phantom, which specifies that Christine is to play the lead in the opera's new production of Il Muto, while Carlotta, the diva, as you may remember, is told to play the page boy, which is a silent part. The Phantom is not a fan of Carlotta. He's not a fan of her singing. He's 
he's not a fan of her acting. That's par for the course. He says, you know, box five in the opera house, box five, that, that's supposed to be empty, all right, for me, in case I want to see the show. Don't sell the seats in box five, okay? It's a big sticking point for me. Also, I get paid 20,000 francs a month, so if you could just deliver that uh, to the rats, they'll drag that away and all. They'll deliver the money to me. Thank you very much. A lot of demands in these notes. Ultimately, the Phantom's orders are completely ignored. They do not pay his salary. They do sell the seats in box five. They make Christine play the silent page boy, and Carlotta is given the lead in El Muto. So really across the board, they really do thumb their nose at the Phantom. Unfortunately, when Carlotta goes on as the lead in El Muto, she loses her voice. Oh no, she loses her voice, and the stagehand is murdered. <laughs> Which is the greater tragedy, one must wonder. Oh, that stagehand was very crusty and very gross to all of the young women. Ah, will we really miss him is the question. Will we really miss him? Christine and Raul race to the rooftop as everyone scrambles about in a panic and they profess their love for each other. And at the same time, Raul keeps saying to Christine, look, I know that you think you spent a lot of time in a cave with a phantom, but I'm pretty sure you're just a weirdo, weirdo. And Christine keeps saying, no, 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 this is real. Please believe me. Don't gaslight me. And Raul says, I have nothing to do but gaslight you. It's my greatest entertainment. So as I said, Raul and Christine do profess their love for each other, and that really makes the Phantom angry. He's been hiding behind a statue on the rooftop the whole time. He's heard everything, and so he causes the chandelier in the opera house to come crashing to the surface. Oh, I'm sure many people died. Six months later, act two, all right? Everyone is celebrating because they have not heard from the Phantom in six months. Oh, it's been utter total bliss. Everyone's dressing up for a masquerade party. Masquerade! Paper faces on parade. Oh, everyone's having fun. And Raoul and Christine are secretly engaged. But Raoul questions this. Why are we secretly engaged? I want to tell everyone. And Christine's like, no, 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 shush, shush. This could be dangerous for us. Okay, you never know if the Phantom's still lurking about. Ironic enough, the Phantom does show up in the middle of the masquerade ball, and he demands that Christine star in his new wholly original opera, Don Juan Triumphant. Spoiler alert, it's a bad opera. He also steals Christine's wedding ring. Oh no! For her secret engagement? Oh no! She was wearing that on a necklace! Oh, and yeah, he's stolen it, is what he is. He's a thief! And then he vanishes. Poof! Madame Giri tells Raoul about the Phantom's past as a brilliant, deformed magician who was a carnival freak before escaping to the opera house. Oh, Taylor's old as time. Raoul goes to Christine and says in front of everyone who works at the opera house, Oh, Christine, you must perform in this Don Juan triumphant opera so that we may trap the Phantom while he's in Box 5. Yes, there's no way he won't be watching you from Box 5. We'll have armed guards come in and we'll shoot him to bits. We'll turn him into pulpy juice. Meat juice is what we will do. And Christine, who is not interested, says, no thanks, asshole. No, I'm not going to put myself in that sort of danger. There is this sort of side tangent <laughs> at this point. There's a rehearsal for Don Juan Triumphant. It's going badly because, as I said, the opera is bad and no one is able to sing it. The notes are far too, far too, it's impossible to reach them. It's hard to reach them. And the piano becomes possessed. Huh? How's that? <laughs> Isn't that spooky? A piano playing all by itself? Ah, it makes me think of all those pianos in malls that I've passed over all these years. Every time a piano starts playing by itself in the middle of a mall, I think, ah, it's possessed! And then the cast also becomes possessed. Oh, it's that scene. Cut it out. Pretty sure they cut that for Vegas, and I understand the choice. 
Christine visits her father's grave, and so she's visiting her father's grave, crying about her dead violinist father, and the phantom drags out the old angel of music routine once more. Christine nearly succumbs to this. She is nearly drawn back into his thrall, but Raoul shows up to save her as the phantom hurls fireballs at them. Christine performs Don Juan Triumphant. The Phantom replaces her co-star after murdering her co-star. She removes his mask while he's trying to force that damned wedding ring on her finger. And oh boy, does the Phantom get mad when you take off his mask. We've already seen it happen once, but now he's really, really mad. The Phantom drags Christine away down, down, down into the bowels of the opera house. The audience becomes a mob. Essentially, it's kill the beast time, kill the beast time. Madame Giri says to Raoul at this point, Oh, the phantom's lair is that way. Follow me, monsieur. Oui, oui. So Christine is in the cave. Oh, even I'm bored with all of this nonsense at this point. Christine is in the cave. She's wearing a wedding dress because the phantom is planning to marry her. Who's going to officiate is my question. And so she's all like, you're bumming me out now, Phantom. This is bumming me out. And Raoul shows up to say, show mercy, Phantom. And the Phantom says to that, ha ha, mercy. Ah, mercy, I'll show you mercy. And he puts Raoul in a noose. A noose is going to hang Raoul. The Phantom says to Christine, choose me or Raoul dies. And Christine, who's feeling a bit magnanimous at this point, says, oh, why don't I give you a single pity kiss instead? Mwah, right on the mouth. Mwah, one pity kiss. And the Phantom says, oh, you, never mind, oh, get out of here, you crazy lovebirds, I've been shown a bit of kindness, and now I generally feel okay. Actually, no, he feels still quite sad, but he has been touched, is what I'm saying, he's been touched. The show ends with the Phantom cloaking himself in his cape. Meg, remember Meg? Meg shows up, but the Phantom's body is gone. She pulls back the cape. There's no body. Where did the body go? Only the mask remains. The Phantom's mask, huh? Spooky. See you on Coney Island, Phantom, and I'll see you all later. Oh, goodness gracious, I feel like this has gone on far too long. I do apologize if I rimbled and rambled. Jonathan, Patty, Benny, it's always nice seeing you. And now I say goodbye to you. I am the Phantom of the Opera, and you have been a wonderful audience. Goodbye! Thank you very much, Phantom. Thank you. I'm sure we'll see you soon, sir. Goodbye! Now, for the purposes of this week's episode, I listened to the 1986 original London cast album. I watched the 1988 Tony Awards performance of The Phantom of the Opera and The Music of the Night. And the only thing I have to say about that is... <laughs> I am, I am always amused when Christine is facepalmed by the Phantom. It's such a big, outsized, goofy cartoon choice. That hand, every finger is just stretched as far as it can. There's so much air between each finger when he facepalms her. I also watched the Phantom of the Opera at the Royal Albert Hall, which was recorded at the Royal Albert Hall in 2011. Sierra Bogus and Ramin Karamlu as Christine and the Phantom. Can we say, can we just say that they're better than Michael Crawford and Sarah Brightman. I, I'm just saying, I think that's where my allegiances lie. Sierra Bogus and Ramin, you got my pledge, okay? You got my pledge. So, the actual show ends at the 2 hour and 17 mark, so you get the bows at 2 hours and 17 minutes, but overall, this thing is 2 hours and 40 minutes when you take into account all of the additional performances and speeches that are given. This very much reminds me of 2010's Les Miserables 
concert, the 25th anniversary. Something about these anniversary productions that they record for video, uh, it really brings out everybody. It really takes takes everybody and pulls them out of the woodwork is what it does. Weber, of course, is doing a lot of speeches and introductions. He's looking like a Muppet on his way to a three-star restaurant. That's what I wrote down, and I'm reading it aloud right now. Sarah Brightman's rendition of Phantom, so she comes out and she sings a rendition of Phantom because she was the first person to perform as Christine in this show. I get it. We have to we have to wheel her out so she can do the song and everybody can give her a standing ovation. And you know what? Uh, for once, I'm going to keep my mouth shut when it comes to this performance because I don't have anything nice to say, really. I'm sure Sarah Brightman is a lovely human being. I would attend a Colm Wilkinson concert. I love Colm Wilkinson, unironically. I would also sit on his lap. But not like that, you perverts. Not like that. I'm not a fan of the Abercrombie Phantom who looks like James Franco and sounds like Bart Simpson. Don't tell me his name. I'm not here to learn the big idiot's name. He's a big, big idiot. Finally, I watched the 2005 Joel Schumacher film. Rewatched it, I should say. It's been a very long time. And here's my big takeaway from that. Emily Rossum was 16 when she played Christine in this film adaptation. Patrick Wilson, who plays Raul, was 30, and Gerard Butler was 34. Here's me on this end, feeling really uncomfortable and disgusted because there is so much fondling and making out so much cleavage in this movie, and I am just at a point where I cannot accept that. <laughs> I was really, really thrown off by that every step of the way. That really fucked me up. That's the first bit of general trivia that you get when you watch this movie through Amazon Video. That is the first thing you learn that Emily, Emmy, I should say Rossin, was 16. Gross. I'm a fan of the production design in Joel Schumacher's movies. It may be the only element of his movies that draws me back to them. And if anything, the production design of Phantom could stand to be even more ridiculous. The tombstones and statuary in the cemetery, for example. I'm I'm thinking bigger, you know, make them big. You directed Batman Forever and Batman and Robin, Joel, we know you have it in you to approve the craziest and gayest ideas possible. Can we talk about Learn To Be Lonely, the song sung by Minnie Driver that plays over the end credits? Ever dreamed out in the world There are arms to attempt at snagging a Best Original Song nomination at the Oscars? It's not a bad song. I always, I realize I always say that right before I drop the old hammer, but it doesn't align with the material at all. We need someone like Annie Lennox or Enya delivering a frosty, ethereal ballad from the depths of the underworld. Learn to be Lonely sounds like it's capping off a Meg Ryan Tom Hanks picture about shared custody of a dog. Note to self, develop pitch for a Meg 
Ryan Tom Hanks picture about shared custody of a dog. Possible title, Roughing It, R-U-F-F-I-N-G, for future reference. Patty, Benny, we are going to start talking about the score, the Phantom of the Opera score, so can we get a little bit of the prologue? A collector's piece, indeed. Every detail, exactly as she said. She often spoke of you, my friend. Your velvet lining and your figurine of land. Will you still play when all the rest of us are dead? Lot 666, then, a chandelier in pieces. Some of you may recall... Thank you very much. I would be more than willing to play the auctioneer. I am a fan of his prattle and weak attempts at humor. And what's more, he gets to kick off the show. As a reminder, I am offer only, though if I were to read for this part, (laughs) can you imagine? Here's what that would sound like. Hi, I'm John Pernasek, represented by no one, and today I'll be reading for the auctioneer. So, your number, sir? Thank you. Lot 665, ladies and gentlemen, a papier-mâché musical box in the shape of a barrel organ. Attached, the figure of a monkey in Persian robes playing the cymbals. This item, discovered in the vaults of the theatre, still in working order. Showing here. May I start at 20 francs? 15, then? 15, I am bid. 20, sir, thank you. 20. 25, thank you, madame. 30? Selling at 30, then? 30 once? Twice? Sold for 30 francs. The Vicomte de Thank you, sir. Lot 666, then. A chandelier in pieces. Some of you may recall the strange affair of the Phantom of the Opera, a mystery never fully explained. We are told, ladies and gentlemen, that this is the very chandelier which figures in the famous disaster. Our workshops have restored it and fitted up parts of it with wiring for the new electric light so that we may get a hint of what it may look like when reassembled. Perhaps we may frighten away the ghost of so many years ago with a little illumination. Gentlemen! Ah, there we are. Wonderful. Thank you, gentlemen. Hey, Maurice, could you handle the bidding on this when I have to take a woolly mammoth of a shit? Thank you very much. I expect to be paid in jewels. Think of me, think of me waking, silent and resigned. Imagine me trying to hop to put you from Remember me, but I. Re- 
Barton's delivery of Can it be? Can it be Christine? Bravo! May not beat out. How are you doing there, John? Crap! But it has claimed a special place in my heart. It's the bravo that gets to me. It's so ferociously earnest, and I don't buy it for a second. If you can lock in with these so-called characters and invest in their feelings and relationships, cool, don't let me rain on your cake. All I see are department store mannequins making eyes at each other. Sure, they look human, but human they are not, and human they shall never be. I went to NYU. I'm a classically trained actor. Yeah, well, none of that will help you here, especially if you're playing Christine, the least developed ingenue in the canon. Oh, I can't wait to figure out Christine's super objective, said no one ever. notes of the Phantom's theme may very well be the most galling example of Andrew Lloyd Webber's plagiarism, again, Sierra Vita episode, but you can't deny their creamy golden Velveeta power. Those notes, those cacophonous, bone-rattling notes. Can we chalk all of Phantom's success up to those six notes, that character theme? Be honest. Once you've heard those six notes and watched the Phantom sail through dry eyes, aren't you basically ready to go home? Wouldn't you be fine leaving the theater at that point? Don't feel bad about it. It's not your fault the show peaks within the first half hour. They have no one to blame but themselves. cool, detached appreciation for Michael Crawford's performance as the Phantom. Music of the Night ends on an impossibly long, carefully sustained note that is astonishing. Vocally, Crawford is putting all of us to shame, and sure, his Phantom is straight out of a carnival dark ride. You you have expect him to pop out of a styrofoam coffin attached to a spring, but it works on that high camp level. I would never consider myself a fanatic, or whatever fans of this show may call themselves, but sure, I'll take a thick 
thick slice of ham with a side of technical prowess? I'm hungry, I gotta eat, don't I? Remember when Michael Crawford lampooned, or at least tried to lampoon, this performance in Dance of the Vampires? If you're not familiar with Dance of the Vampires, it's available in full as a bootleg on YouTube. Crawford sings Total Eclipse of the Heart with a Christine surrogate, and they adopt the famous Phantom Christine embrace. It does not work. While listening to the music of the night, my mind naturally drifted to this classic quote from Dracula. Listen to them, children of the night, what music they make. That's when I realized the Phantom of the Opera is just Dracula minus the supernatural. Like the Phantom, Dracula is scary. He's sexy. He lives in solitude. He'll seduce you with his terrible clarion call, and he doesn't take no for an answer. To review, the Phantom equals Dracula minus the supernatural plus one mask. Am I wrong? If I'm wrong, come at me. Patty, Benny, it's uh, me again, John Pernasek. Can we now play that clip from the All I Ask of You reprise? Thank you in advance again. moment closed out every episode of our All I Ask of You Patreon series, and I've never not found it funny. I'm not sure why, though. Maybe it's because Sarah Brightman and Steve Barton sound like kids putting on a play for their parents. I can understand why the choice was made. Raul and Christine are childhood chums, after all, and a bit of innocence from their salad days would surely carry over into their adult interactions, but we're getting much more than a bit here. If you don't want to hear me guffawing from the second balcony, scale back the glassy-eyed whimsy, do me that favor, and steam up the glass instead. Phantom spends a lot of its time gesturing towards sexuality, often literally, but there isn't a lot of visceral chemistry on display, so please ratchet up the horniness. Phantom's plenty horny already. Oh, I disagree. Hard disagree. Show me Raul's body. While watching the Royal Albert Hall performance of the song Masquerade, I decided that Madame Giri deserves icon status because literally everyone at the Masquerade is wearing a costume except her. She's got one outfit. She's Nickelodeon's Doug. She's Bart Simpson of The Simpsons. It's funeral black. Fuck you. She changes for no one. Would you please come to Ari's to picnic, Madame Giri? Oh, I would love to. Can I wear my black dress and step my cane at all of those I find to be detestable? Of course. The dancers in monkey costumes throughout this performance of the Royal Albert Hall, they have extreme Jenny Annie Dots energy, I tell you what. 
Okay, so here's my big plot. Uh, this is my big nitpick in regards to the plot of this scene. Why isn't anyone tackling the Phantom when he appears during the masquerade? Huh? Someone, try. Someone have the temerity, the gall, to tackle him from the side or from behind, for, uh, for God's sake. I get you're all gobsmacked out of your gourds, but come on already, take action. I do find it interesting how Weber regularly takes a hard turn into the next beat as many of Phantom's biggest numbers draw to a close. There is no air for applause, for example, after Christine's glass-shattering final note in The Phantom of the Opera, and Masquerade, which spends nearly seven minutes marching toward a grand finish, is swiftly cut down by this sudden appearance of the Phantom. This strategy would presumably escalate tensions and leave the audience breathless, trapped within the confines of Weber's tale. While also ensuring everyone, you know, gets out in under two and a half hours. I can safely say that one of those goals was achieved. Please, monsieur, another note. Oh. Fondest greetings to you all. A few instructions just before rehearsal starts. Carlotta must be taught to act, not a normal trick. I've been meaning to say this, but the Phantom has a branding problem. He has way too many nicknames. That's the problem. The Angel of Music, the Opera Ghost, OG, the Phantom of the Opera. Pick a lane already, my dude. Legends and legacies are easily muddled. Fermin and Andre are highly concerned about the health of their new chandelier and seem to have forgotten that someone was murdered on their property. Remember the murder, guys? The stagehand? He was hung from the rafters in front of hundreds of paying customers? Yes, yes, but the chandelier! Oh boy. I love the collective sigh of disgust and exhaustion you hear from these characters when they realize yet another letter has arrived from the Phantom. Ugh, these letters. I'm not even scared anymore. I'm just annoyed. You don't find a lot of comedy within Phantom, and most of what is there is fairly broad, so I appreciate the soft touch of this moment. Raul can't be the first to suggest trapping the Phantom in Box 5, can he? Was no one else capable of drawing these basic conclusions? Apparently not, as everyone treats Raul's plan as if it were a rare, gleaming spark of genius. Also, you're devising this plan within the walls of the Opera House, you morons! You don't think the Phantom has every inch of this place wired for sound? He sees everything, he hears everything, he knows everything! Walk three blocks in any direction and have this conversation somewhere else. Go to a Starbucks! Wishing you somehow 
I've never felt inspired to examine the nuts and bolts of the Phantom score, which is ironic considering a major theme of the show is music's power to bewitch and bedevil the mind. Christine's jumping into the waves and grasping for pearls while I'm on the beach slack-jawed and asleep. I must learn more about music! Can I get another strawberry banana daiquiri? But here's a hopelessly banal observation for you. The sometimes it seemed if I just dreamed somehow you would be here. Melody from wishing you were somehow here again. It's a perfectly nice pleasant melody. Pour it like pink lemonade over ice and watch me drink it up. Is that man double fisting a pink lemonade and a strawberry banana daiquiri? And what if he is? So what? The Phantom of the Opera has had its share of imitators over the years. Some are more transparent than others, of course. Some were written by Weber himself, see The Woman in White. But all of these musicals are similarly desperate to crack Phantom's recipe for success. And within each of these ghoulish, gothic, wannabe blockbusters, you're sure to find a ripoff of The Point of No Return, as it is arguably this number that distills everything people love about Phantom down to a single confrontation. Christine and the Phantom, you know, they're tightly wound at this moment, engaging in a dangerous and sexy tug-of-war that could result in ecstasy or violence. Oh, it's everything the Phantom's about. It's all there, baby. You'll find that tempestuous energy in a great deal of Frank Wildhorn's work, for example. Jekyll and Hyde's A Dangerous Game, The Scarlet Pimpernel's The Riddle, and he also wrote a Dracula musical, and we've already compared... We've already compared the Phantom to Dracula, so I'm sure there's all sorts of Phantom riffs in that fucking show. If anyone has other examples of Phantom imitators, I want to hear about them. Send us an email, slide into our DMs. P.S. Wildhorns take me as I am in Jekyll and Hyde. That's his all I ask of you 100%. The titles of both songs are five syllables long. Take me as I am, all I ask of you. Coincidence? I think not. I think my dear, we have a guest. Sir, this is indeed an unparalleled delight. I had rather hoped that you would come. And now my wish comes true. You have truly made my night. Free her. Do what you like, only free her. Have you no pity? Your lover makes a passionate plea. He's wrong, it's useless. I love her. Does that mean nothing? I love her. Show some compassion. The world showed no compassion to me. Christine, Christine, let me see her. Be my guest, sir.
At around the 3 minute and 30 second mark on the track down once more slash track down this murderer, we hear Raul shout, free her! Do what you like, only free her! I nearly fell out of my chair. The alarm bells in my head were that loud, but for a hot second, I was stymied and stumped. I found myself in this situation several times where I think, what exactly am I hearing? What is the free her line a clone of and who exactly is Andrew stealing from? The answer is, of course, Kiss Me from Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. There might be a 1-2% to difference in the musical DNA, but that in no way squashes my suspicions. I'm watching you, Weber. I'm listening to you. Just know when you're working on Cinderella or whatever middling family entertainment you've currently got brewing that I am watching and I am listening. I've decided the Phantom is the worst 19-year-old nephew you could ever hope to have living in your unfinished basement. Can I have uh, $1,000? Don't sit there. That's where I sit. Read my play. Come on, read it. Uh, I don't want green beans for dinner. I want tater tots. Who's your friend? She's hot. Uh, make her be in my play. Did you read my play? It's called The Elegant Virtues of Terry the Arthurian Libertarian. Why doesn't your friend want to be in my play? Why is everyone's so rude all the time. Yes, I burned down the garage, and no, I did not get the job at Dick's Sporting Goods. Ah! I was surprisingly affected, if only slightly, when the Phantom sang Masquerade to the tune of his monkey music box. Masquerade, paper faces on parade, masquerade. Hide your face so the world will never find you. <laughs> Wah! Kind of, sort of poignant. Double meaning basically works. Oh, <laughs> I'm just throwing crumbs at this point. I want Meg to end the show by picking up the Phantom's mask, holding it up to the crowd, and saying, I have no idea what the fuck this thing is, or what the fuck is going on, blackout, hard blackout, no bows. Remember Meg, the character Meg? Remember how the show pretends Meg is a character? <laughs> she's the last person we see on stage. It would lead you to think she's important to the show. She's not. And that's it as far as our deconstruction of the Phantom score is concerned. We are now going to throw it over to our wonderful sponsor, 5678 Coffee. Take it away, 5678. The humans are drinking coffee. Coffee? Coffee. Coffee. The humans are drinking coffee. Sipping it after the clock strikes five, wishing it, praying it keeps them alive. Downing it after the clock strikes six, adding their creamer until they are sick. Pouring it after the clock strikes seven, knowing they'll never get into heaven. Guzzling coffee long after eight, these humans are bound for a terrible fate. Coffee is sweet, though cats are sweet, a fact no human would dare to doubt. But five, six, seven, eight in the theater? That's the brand on which you can count. thoughts regarding the Phantom of the Opera. The compliment I'm about to give isn't the brightest feather one can place in their cap. If I were the recipient of this feather, I wouldn't go around town calling it macaroni, but if Andrew Lloyd Webber and Charles Hart can say anything about the Phantom of the Opera, it's this. None of the other Phantom musicals we've discussed can possibly compete against it. Having skimmed the surface of Yeston and Copet and Ken Hill's adaptations, I can say with confidence that it wasn't much of a contest to begin 
begin with, but here are the facts, quote-unquote the facts as I see them. Does the Weber Hart Phantom have more style and swagger than its predecessors? Yes. Does the Weber Hart Phantom lean into the outsized melodrama of the source material rather than take itself too seriously? Certainly, which is why I think so many people have returned to it over the last 30 years. No one wants a tasteful take on the Phantom Ken Hill. No one's interested in a Phantom who isn't taking over the soul of a piano or hurling fireballs at his enemies, Maury Yeston. The world has spoken and we want our Phantom to be a gonzo Phantom. Give us a Phantom who's weird and wild. One last question. Does the Weberhart Phantom succeed at the expense of countless uncredited artists? Human beings who Weber was more than willing to rob from while they were asleep in their beds? Absolutely, which is why I'm not willing to give this piece any praise or credit beyond what it's already received. Why would anyone bother going to bat for the Phantom of the Opera anyway? It's just fine. It's stupid fun. But it doesn't care about finding a real place in our hearts. You can tune it out for minutes at a time and never lose the thread. Go to the bathroom. Take a phone call. No one's going to be offended. Who cares? They already have your money. So I say again, let's not waste too much breath praising the musical theater equivalent of jeans. There will always be jeans. You will always be able to buy jeans. The jeans aren't going anywhere. No one's expecting you or I to extol the unappreciated virtues of jeans. One final, final thought for you. Is it not telling how Weber is drawn to enigmatic jerks? Characters who put themselves on a pedestal while begging for adoration and understanding. You got the Phantom, Evita, Jesus, Weber himself. <laughs> They're all grumpy and hard to love. Now, as a reminder, in 1988, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was The Phantom of the Opera, and the additional nominees that year were Into the Woods, Romance, Romance, and Serafina. I'm just going to put this out there. I've said it before. I told you that we were going to get to this eventually, and now we're here. I told you not to fast forward. I hope that you didn't. You can't do that. That's cheating. But here's the thing. Into the Woods, if you win Best Book and Best Score, that makes you the automatic winner of the Best Musical Award in my mind. Come on already. Give me a break. Into the Woods deserved it. Into the Woods should have gotten it, and we're going to make sure that it gets that award. Everybody to the time machines. You all have your own personal time machines. Go, we'll meet up at the Virgin Records store. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll figure it out. Now it's time for me to rank the show. Yes, it's true. I will rank the show against all of the other musicals we have talked about here on the podcast. The Phantom of the Opera, you will be at number 33 for the time being. You will be just above Cats at number 34 and just below Shrek the Musical at number 32. He thinks Shrek the Musical is better than the Phantom of the Opera? He's crazy. Maybe I am. <laughs> Maybe I am, fair children. Let's talk about show-related ephemera. Oh, we've got all sorts of wonderful goodies for you today. First of all, I found this version of Masquerade from the Netflix series, The Chilling Adventures of Sabrina. Can we just get a little bit of that, Patty and Benny? Masquerade Paper faces on parade Masquerade Hide your face so the world will never find you Masquerade, every face a different shade. Masquerade, look around, there's another mask behind you. Flash of moon, splash of kiss, fool and king, cool and kiss, green and black, queen and kiss, tricks of foolish, face of kiss. Faces, take your turn, take a ride on the merry-go-round, melancholy, my embrace. I am blue, true is false, who is him? Color of lips, oil of 
Thank you, as always, Patty and Benny. Oh, I love you, Patty. I love you, Benny. This one, this next one, comes from Jenna, listener Jenna. Thank you very much, Jenna, for sending this my way. I loved it. It is a 1992 ad for the Phantom of the Opera Toronto tour. So this would have been playing at the Pantages Theater Toronto in 1992. It's a great commercial. All you have to picture if you've never seen it, of course, you can find it on YouTube, but if you don't watch it, it's the skyline of Toronto, and then the Mask of the Phantom appears over the skyline. It's during this time-lapse photography footage. We go from like daytime to nighttime, and this is this is the Phantom that you're going to be hearing in this ad. Let's take it away. In Toronto, there's magic in the air. <laughs> By Phantom, by phone. I can't get over that. By Phantom, by phone. So very funny to me. If you're a fan of the comedian Chris Fleming, you might already be aware of his video, The Phantom of the Opera, trying to dock his boat during the winter months. Gary, hi. From the marina down by the harbor. <laughs> Thank you so much for calling me back. Look, I am in a pinch. I don't even know how I got this boat. <laughs> I don't even leave the theater. They, they warned me, like they said, you know, the best day of your life is the day you get the boat. Then the second best day of your life is <laughs> when you get rid of the boat. So tell me, what ballpark, what is it going to cost me if I take it to the marina and keep it there Labor Day weekend through the following May? 300 it's not like a catamaran. It's like a glorified canoe. Oh, we got we got more for you. We got more. Trust me. We have a segment from the 1988 animated version of The Phantom of the Opera, which was released, I believe, direct-to-video under the Celebrity Home Entertainment's Just for Kids line. This is a very funny segment. You gotta watch this on YouTube, if only to skip around. The animation is so terrible. This makes Hanna-Barbera look like the most gorgeous Miyazaki piece you've ever seen in your life. Life. Really, the voice acting, you'll hear a bit of it. It's hilarious. Let's hear it. How dare you enter without permission? Where is he? Where are you hiding him? What are you doing? How could you? How could I what? Deceive me! How could you deceive me? Deceive you? In what way did I deceive you? You have a man in the room. I heard everything. You are listening? You have no right. I have every right. I love you. Raoul! Don't presume on our childhood friendship. Didn't you hear me? I said I love you. I don't want to hear it. You have no right to spy on me. Who is he, Christine? Who is this man who asked you to love him? He is not a man. He is a spirit. The spirit of music. What? 
Amazing. Finally, I'd like to tell you about a musical I came across while perusing the Music Theater International site. It features a book by Kathy Santon and Sean Grennan, music by Michael Duff, and lyrics by Cheryl Coons. Here's the official logline. The Phantom of the Opera gets a little bit country, and Phantom of the Country Opera, featured in the Festival of New Musicals, sponsored by the National Alliance of Musical Theater, and produced nationally and internationally, Phantom of the Country Opera is a splashy, hilarious country-western send-up of the classic horror tale. Operatic sensation Christina, Chrissy Joseph, leaves a promising career and a devoted boyfriend at La Scala and returns to her roots in Nashville, Tennessee, singing backup at the Country Palace. Her mother has passed away, and she wants to make it as a country star, like her mother always wanted. In Nashville, she finds an enemy in an aging country-western diva, and a mentor in a mysterious janitor who is determined to make her country music's newest star. When mysterious things start happening at the Opry, Chrissy finds out that there's more going on backstage than she first suspected. Featuring older roles and a star vehicle for a talented actress, Phantom of the Country Opera's medium-sized cast is perfect for companies that are looking to do a standard musical. The small to medium-sized orchestra gives productions flexibility in bringing the unforgettable eclectic score to life. Filled with irreverent wit, painful punning, uh, sly contemporary references, oh, oh god, and more than a touch of the absurd, I'm sure. This shameless romp, shameless? <laughs> It's a shameless romp. This shameless romp will have audiences tapping their toes and rolling in the aisles. I love that they say it features older roles. Well, good for them. <laughs> we made room. Who's old? Who's old and wants to sing? Get up here! To determine which show we discuss next, we'll need to take a ride on the musical carousel, otherwise known as the random number generator I named after that classic Rogers and Hammerstein show, Itchy Itchy Na Na. Ta-ta! Everyone ready? Then away we go! All right, I have stepped off of the musical carousel and I have found myself in the year 1991. Now, you may recall that we have talked about one nominee from this season so far. That would be Miss Saigon. Now we're talking about another nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It ran for 469 performances and that show is none other than Once on This Island. That's right, Once on This Island, you're next, baby. You're next. We're coming for you, island. Ah, yes, it's true. <laughs> Go to Patreon dot com slash musical man pod to find out how you can support the show financially. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. And if you donate at least one dollar a month, you will get a verbal shout out each and every week here on the podcast. And if you'll recall in our Descendants episode, I said I would do this twice to make up for the fact that I didn't shout anyone out during the Descendants episode. So here we go. Thank you so much for donating at least one dollar a month. Mark S, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol, and we're saying them again. Marcus, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, and Marisol. You also get bonus episodes. If you donate at least $1 a month via Patreon, you get bonus episodes covering the 73rd Annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, my full review of the film Cats, and my review of Chicago Shakespeare Theater's production of Emma. We got a ton of $1 a month bonus 
bonus episodes coming our way, coming your way, our collective way, I should say. So go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. You can learn all about all of the things that we are going to be covering here in the calendar year 2020. If you donate at least $3 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. And you also get access to our ongoing Wildcats Everywhere series, which is a bi-weekly series about the high school musical franchise. That's right. We have a brand new episode dropping today. It's all about the next two episodes in the first season of High School Musical, the musical, the series. That's true. That's all true. I'm not telling you lies, people. If you donate $5 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned. Plus, you are able to stop the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. Tell me what musical you want to hear about. Give me $5 and you can tell me what to do. Boss me around. You also get access to season one, 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, the Phantom of the Opera's advice show for the villains of the world of musical theater. And you also get access to our ongoing Broadway and Chicago series of reviews. I have already reviewed Oslo, Mean Girls, Once on this Island, huh? and Summer, the Donna Summer Musical. And I believe we have another episode in that series dropping at the end of March or the very beginning of April. I think on the first, a review of the My Fair Lady Revival. That is what we will be dropping on the first, I believe. And finally, if you donate $10 a month, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus access to all 12 episodes of Season 1 of The Snub Club, which is a special series about musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. Those musicals are Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, The Bridges of Madison County, A Doll's Life, Aida, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Now all of your money, all of the money that you donate toward the show goes toward the purchase of cast recordings, movie rentals, and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean. And if we ever get to the point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total monthly donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Thank you for listening to the show again. As always, if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to write a five-star review. If you are streaming, you might be doing that through musicalmanpod.podbean.com or Stitcher. Thank you for streaming. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny in the booth. And Betty, please be sure, of course, we thanked her profusely in person, but thank that thank that lovely girlfriend of yours again. <laughs> that girlfriend of yours. I sound like a crazy person. Thank her for these wonderful hats. I am sweating. I am schwitzing. It's true, but I'm never taking this hat off. That's not true. I have to wash my hair at a certain point, but I do love these hats. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo and Zach Little for our fabulous music. That's that doorbell. And you know what that sound means. Oh, what an epic episode we had today. But, you know, just when the fun is starting, that's when the time comes for parting. Well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, Afinashen, and good night.
tried to destroy him. In your greed, you tore everything precious from him. But Eric remembers. What if Eric didn't really die in that fire? And now, Eric will not rest until you're destroyed, too. Eric Matthews is still alive. Eric has you caught in the perfect trap, and he's going to leave you breathless. You will never escape him. You had better be nice to Eric, or he won't be nice to you. Phantom of the Mall, Eric's Revenge. What? 